doing a sermon series in the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, we are going chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And the whole point of Deuteronomy, if I could distill it down to a single point, is how do we become a people that faithfully keeps the commandments of God? Like, how do we become a people unlike the wilderness generation? Remember that first generation that came out of Egypt that perished in the wilderness because of their disobedience? How can we become obedient to God? And so what you see then in Deuteronomy, uh, especially the first 11 chapters, it's basically this extended sermon by Moses. And he's making the case um, for a life of obedience. And like every good sermon, he's making argument after argument. He makes this point and then that point. And we've been following along. We've been looking at it chapter by chapter. And now we're in chapter 6. And the interesting thing about chapter 6 is that Jesus actually looks back He goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 when he is tempted in the wilderness. And so uh, you might remember the story, right? It's recorded for us in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Jesus goes out into the wilderness. Um, He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. He's tested like Israel was tested in in the wilderness. Will he obey? Will he trust and love God no matter what the circumstances? And then when he is at his weakest, Satan comes to him and he tempts him three times. And did you know that two of those times, actually all three times, Jesus quotes exclusively from Deuteronomy. But two of those times he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. When Satan says to Jesus, bow down to me and I will give you all the nations of the world. Jesus responds with verse 13. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. When Satan says, you know, Jesus, throw yourself from the heights of the temple because the Bible says the angels will rescue you and then everyone will know that you're the Messiah. Jesus responds by quoting verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So I think this is really profound because when Jesus was put to the test, when he was pressed against the wall, what was he doing? He was thinking about Deuteronomy chapter 6. He was meditating on it. He was drawing strength and encouragement from this passage. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 6. What are the arguments that Moses gives us for the obedient life? And if you look at the text, there are four arguments. And they're neatly divided for you into four paragraphs. Each paragraph corresponds to a point. And so these are my four points. Here's my outline. Number one. We need to beware of the danger of prosperity. Number two, we need to remember the jealousy of God. Number three, we we are not to put God to the test. And then finally, number four, we have to understand that obedience comes from rescue. So let's begin. Number one, the danger of prosperity. And here, let me read to you verses 10 through 15. This is for you. uh, This is printed for you in the bulletin. First paragraph. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land, that's the promised land, that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, 
to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So what is Moses' first argument? He says, when you come into the promised land and when you experience all of the bounty, all of the prosperity of the land, when you enjoy homes and gardens and all of these good things, he says, then the danger is that you will forget the Lord. You will neglect his commandments. Now, at first blush, this seems um, rather odd. It seems to make no sense at all. Because we can all understand how adversity and suffering can test your faith. It can cause you to doubt the goodness and the love of God. It can feed into bitterness and anger and then you turn away from God. And we all know people for whom this has happened. But how does prosperity and success lead to the loss of faith? And the answer is that prosperity and success can and so often does lead to pride and self-sufficiency. And it's not that you don't believe in God anymore. It's just that you don't need him as much. Because why do you need God when you have money and success? Why do you need to pray for his help, his strength, when you already feel strong? You already feel safe because of the good things in your life. I think this is so profound because we can all understand the spiritual dangers of suffering, but we don't understand as well the very real spiritual dangers of success. And because we are less aware of it, because we are less on guard against it, actually it is success that is far more dangerous and deadly to our souls. The story um, that always haunts me in the Bible is the story of uh, King David. David is one of the great spiritual heroes of the Bible. He is called the sweet singer of Israel because literally he wrote half of the Psalms. He wrote about 75 of the Psalms. They're attributed to him. And if you know the Psalms, Uh, Most of them, many of them have these little inscriptions, these little descriptions at the very beginning of the setting in which they were written. And when you look at David's Psalms, you see that virtually all of the settings is that when he was a fugitive on the run, or when he was surrounded by his enemies, or when he experienced betrayal and heartache. And what you notice is that in the life of David, it was through hardship and adversity that you see from David this outpouring of faith and devotion to God. But then when David finally reaches the palace, when he finally secures the kingship and he settles into power, suddenly he stops writing psalms and he goes silent. And instead he's in this place of comfort and security, and then one day, he walks out onto the roof of his palace, and he looks down, and he notices 
a woman naked bathing, and her name is Bathsheba. If you know the rest of the story, you know that it ends in disaster and murder and adultery. And it's this haunting story. Because here David is at the pinnacle of success, at the heights of his power and acclaim. And that is when he is the most susceptible to sin and to temptation. This is a sober warning for us all. So what is the antidote? What is the antidote? Notice in the text, Modus Moses repeatedly emphasizes, you see this in verse 11, you did not build your houses, you did not dig your cisterns, you did not plant your gardens, but they are all, all of them, a gift from God. And so the key, listen to me now, the key to a godly life is to remember that all of your success is a gift from God. James chapter 1, verse 17, every um, good gift is from above, coming down from the Father. And so your life is a gift. Your health is a gift. Your family upbringing, even with its defects, was a gift. The fact that you live here in the Bay Area and you're not a refugee in Afghanistan or Syria or Burkina Faso, that's a gift. All these good things you did not engineer, you are not responsible for the circumstances of your birth. And therefore, when you realize this and when you also take into account the doctrine of sin, you are always living a life better than you deserve. And when you realize that, and when it hits you like a ton of bricks, then from your life will flow praise and thanksgiving. And then from that, joyful obedience. So that's the first point. Beware the dangers of prosperity. The second point, the jealousy of God. And here, let me read to you verses... um, 13 and 15 through 15. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. So this is difficult. (laughs) This idea of a jealous God, it it doesn't seem quite right. Um, And what makes this especially challenging is that these are not, you know, the jealousy of God is not just found in these sort of fringe texts, in obscure passages in the Bible, if there is such a thing. But in fact, we find them all throughout the Bible Dozens of passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in fact, it's so central to who God is, the Bible's portrait of God, that actually you have a passage like Exodus 34, 14, where it says, listen to this, God's name is jealous. Jealousy is so woven into the very identity of God that it is his very name. His name is jealous. 
So what do we do with this? We have to grapple with it. Um, the most helpful book that I've ever read on this subject is, is uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Fantastic book. Let me highly recommend it to you. Um, I first read it in college, and um, I'll never experience—I'll never forget the experience of reading it. I can still remember the room in which I was reading it. And when I got to the chapter on the jealousy of God, J.I. Packer—he's unpacking the biblical logic behind this attribute of God—and my heart just burned with love and adoration for God because I want you to know the jealousy of God is one of his most beautiful attributes. It is to the glory of God. And so let me walk you through the argument. Let me pause also for the plane. So J.I. Packer, he starts by saying, when you look at the Bible, and when you see that the Bible talks about jealousy, it's actually mostly about human jealousy. So, you know, you have the story of Joseph and his brothers, you have the story of uh, Rachel and Leah, and it is almost entirely negative, because human jealousy is petty. It's self-absorbed, full of anger, and it comes from this place of emptiness. And the classic example is the story of King Saul. King Saul, if you, if you read 1 Samuel, he sees young David, and he, he recognizes the potential. So he invites him into his court. David is attractive. He's this heroic warrior, and he wins the heart of the people. And then one day, David comes home from battle, and he hears the crowds chanting, singing this song, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And Saul hears this song, and then what happens next is really one of the great tragic stories of the Bible, because Saul becomes eaten up with jealousy. And it turns him into this evil, murderous person. And for the rest of the story, for the rest of his life, he is controlled by this rage. And that's human jealousy. And then J.I. Packer says, the the great puzzle of the Bible is that it takes the same word. It's not a different word. It's the same Hebrew word for jealousy. And then it applies it to God. So what do we do with this? J.I. Packer says, you have to realize that there are actually two kinds of human jealousy. There's the bad jealousy that we're all familiar with, but he says there is also a good jealousy. This is the jealousy that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, I have a godly jealousy for you. He says that very poignantly, I have a godly jealousy for the churches. And so it is possible to have a good, healthy jealousy that doesn't come from a place of emptiness. It actually comes from a place of fullness. 
that doesn't seek to destroy, but it's actually seeking to protect what is good and precious. And J.I. Packer says the best and highest example of this good jealousy is the jealousy that a husband has for his wife. And so, for example, you know, imagine this scenario. Suppose one day a husband were to discover some strange man romantically kissing his wife. How would he respond? Would he say, oh, that's fine. I don't see any problem here. And if we were to witness that, would we all say, how magnanimous of this husband to graciously graciously share his wife with another man. No, we would all say there's something deeply wrong here, right? His marriage must not mean anything to him because a good husband, a faithful husband, if he sees his wife in the arms of another man, it would arouse his anger. And he would be angry not because he hates his wife, but because he loves her. And he wants an exclusive, intimate love relationship with her. That's why he's jealous. And so J.I. Packer says this is the human analogy to the jealousy of God. And it's really so profound because do you know what this means? It means that what God ultimately wants from us is not mere obedience. It's not just technical rule keeping, but he wants an intimate love relationship with us like that of a husband and his wife. And this is why in our text it says, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you know? Do you understand what God is saying? A few years back, um, I read a book, very helpful by uh, Larry Hurtado. Larry Hurtado is a scholar who studies early Christianity. And he wrote a book called Destroyer of the Gods. And in the book, he's examining how Christianity was experienced by the pagans in the ancient Roman world. Fascinating book. And he says, you have to remember that in the ancient pagan world, everyone was a polytheist, which means that there were many gods. And each of these gods had their own sort of domain, their sort of sphere of influence. And each of the gods had their own sort of set of limited powers that could either help you or hurt you. And then Larry Hurtado says that your job as an ancient worshiper was to appease all of the gods in your life. Because each of them had their own separate demands. And he says it was a lot like being a waiter in a busy restaurant, and you're running around frantically trying to serve all of the gods, trying to meet all of their needs, and you can understand how very stressful and exhausting this was, but that was the paganism of the ancient world. And then along comes Christianity, and Christianity said something utterly, utterly unique. It said, There are no other gods. There's just one God. And he does not want to be treated as just one more customer in your life. 
But he comes and he says, I want a marriage relationship with you. I want exclusive commitment with you. I want to be at the center of your life. I want a love relationship with you. And Larry Hurtado, and he says this all throughout this book, all throughout his book, he says this idea that you can love God and not just dutifully serve Him was not just unique in the ancient world, it was utterly unique. It was almost incomprehensible to the ancient people. And therefore, do you understand what it means when the Bible says that God is jealous? It means that He wants a marriage relationship with you. He wants your exclusive love. And therefore, do you understand how violating it is when you worship idols? See, an idol is not just a little statue that you bow down to. An idol is anything that you put before God, anything that has a higher priority in your life than God. So let me give you an example. When you get up in the morning and you have a chance to pray and to read the Bible, but instead you decide to look at your phone and you notice you have all of these work emails waiting for you, so you decide you're going to get a jump on that. Or you know that you have an important meeting later in the day, so rather than pray and spend time with God, you decide to work on that. And you don't just do this once or twice. You do this every day. This is the pattern of your life. Don't you see that you are putting yourself spiritually in the arms of other lovers? You are committing spiritual adultery. You are provoking the jealousy of God. You see, we have a jealous God. And He doesn't just want you to go through the motions of obedience. You know, a lot of people say, what do I have to do to get God off my back? What are the minimum number of rules that I have to keep so that I can get God to bless me? But God wants your heart. Not just part of it, all of it. He wants to be the priority of your life. He wants your time. He wants your commitment. He wants to be first in your life. Just like you would treat a spouse, He wants a love relationship with you. Do you understand the intensity, the priority of what God is asking for? Third point, do not put God to the test. We're going to be quick about quick on this point. Uh, let me read to you verses 16 through 19. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all of your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised." So what does it mean here to put God to the test? The key is at the end of verse 16. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So what is this, right? What happened at Massa? 
And here we need to go back to Exodus chapter 17. If you read Exodus 17, the story is Israel is in the wilderness and they're hungry, they're thirsty because the wilderness is a very harsh environment. And so they grumble and they complain and the text says that they quarreled with Moses and they accused him. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Was it so that you could kill us here in the wilderness? And Moses responds, he says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And so to test God is basically to put God on trial. It's to level a charge against God. It's to question his goodness and his love. It's a posture of skepticism and unbelief. It's to put yourself in the seat of the judge and it's to say, I will be very fair with the evidence. But God, I regard you as guilty until proven innocent. And then out of that, out of that comes conditional obedience. I'll obey you, God, as long as my life is going the way it's supposed to. I'll trust you, Lord, as long as I get good explanations for any troubles along the way. The problem with conditional obedience is ultimately, don't you see, you're in charge, not God. You're in charge. Imagine a parent and a child, and they're sitting in a car, and the parent says to her child, please put on your seatbelt. The child responds, no, not until, you, not until you tell me why. You know, just give me a good explanation, and then I'll obey. But right now, I'm just not persuaded. What is the parent going to do? Is the parent going to respond, you know, you're right. I haven't really made a strong case. Let me give you some statistics. Let me show you some videos of mangled bodies. No, the parent is going to say, listen, listen to me. I don't think you understand the nature of our relationship. Let me educate you. I'm the parent. You are the child. There's an enormous gap in wisdom and experience between us. And you need to trust me that I love you, that I have your best interest in mind, and that I am wiser than you. I want you to understand that the gap between a parent and her child is nothing, nothing compared to the infinite gulf in wisdom and goodness and love between Almighty God and human beings. And therefore, and let me say this as forcefully as I can, you are not equipped to judge whether God is doing a good job with your life. How would you even know the difference between what looks bad in the short run and what is ultimately good for you in the long run? How could you even begin to comprehend the thousand different strands that God is weaving together in your life, that He is orchestrating all of these events, all of these people, and He's doing that for all the other people too, for your good and joy and holiness. How can you understand the infinite mind of God? And therefore, let God be the judge and every man a liar. 
The fourth point, and let me pause for my second allowance. All right. The, uh, the fourth point is verses 20 through 25. Let me read it for you. Final paragraph. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So in the text, you have the son asking his father, why do I have to obey God? And it's great, right? Because Moses has just been giving argument after argument for this very point. But what the son is asking is, yeah, What is the ultimate argument? I want you to know that the Bible never, never says just do it. Don't ask questions, just obey. Because that won't win your heart. True obedience comes from the heart. So the Bible's response is never just obey, but the Bible always gives us arguments. And the ultimate argument is this. Obedience comes from the gospel. And the gospel in the Old Testament is the story of Exodus. It's sort of the paradigm salvation event in the Old Testament. What happened in the Exodus is that God's people, the Israelites, they're crying out to him in Egypt. God looks upon their misery and their bondage and he rescues them with a mighty hand, with signs and wonders, right? Principally the 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 10 plagues, and he brings down judgment on Egypt and on Pharaoh. And at the very center of the plagues, at the very climax of the plagues, is Passover. What happens in Passover is that every family has to gather together and they have to have a sacrificial lamb. And so they have to slaughter this perfect, innocent lamb And then they have to take the blood of this lamb and smear it on the doorposts of their home so that when the angel of death and judgment sees the blood that is covering over the people, the angel will pass over and so the people are spared. Now, if you are a Christian and you turn to the pages of the New Testament, you realize that the story of the Exodus is not an end to itself. It's a signpost pointing to the true Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ, and by his blood shed on the cross, our sins are forgiven. That's the gospel. And I want you to know that when that gospel becomes not just an abstract story, you know, for so many of us, 
we hear the gospel every Sunday and we're like, yeah, I don't disagree. (laughs) I believe in the gospel. But it has no power in your life. But instead, when the gospel becomes this living, breathing reality for you, when it goes right into you and cuts into your heart, let me tell you what will happen. You will be changed. You will be transformed. You will become what the New Testament calls a new creation. I want to close with a story. Uh, One of the things that I really love is listening to testimonials. I love to read, uh, in our membership forums, we have people write the testimony of their faith. It is an immense delight for me to read them. Uh, Several years ago, I... um, Redeemer Presbyterian Church put out a series of videos in which they interviewed their own members. And it was basically a, a series of these conversion stories. It was about a dozen of them. And there was one particular story that really moved me. And I, I want to share with you the story. It's the story of Charlie Oswalt. Charlie Oswalt grew up in Brooklyn, in New York City in the 1960s. He's really fun to listen to because he has this really thick Brooklyn accent. And he says that, you know, when he grew up, he had a good family. He was a really smart and industrious kid. But he lived a rather naive and sheltered life. And then he went to City College of New York. And there he met a woman named Barbara. And he fell head over heels in love with Barbara. It was his first real relationship, and he just became completely overwhelmed by this passionate love affair. And then at age 17, when he was his first year of college, he married Barbara. His parents strongly disapproved, and it estranged him from his family. But he says it only made the romance of it more intense. But the relationship was challenging because he and Barbara were very different people. They had very different temperaments. They came from different family backgrounds, religious backgrounds. He, he grew up Roman Catholic. She was Protestant. And so the marriage was a difficult marriage, volatile, full of conflict. And then one day, his wife told him, I'm leaving you for another man. Charlie Oswald said the rejection he felt at that moment was just so intense and unbearable. He couldn't eat. When he would drive around, he had to stop every once in a while and pull over so he could vomit. Everything in the apartment reminded him of her. And so he started living in his car. And so he couldn't take showers. It was affecting his work. He was a teacher at a Catholic high school. His life was a mess. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't eat. Everything that he thought that he could do, and he was relatively successful at that point in his life, he was failing at. He felt this intense anger and bitterness. And he would pray to God for God to strike down Barbara. One day, he decided to go to a Good Friday service at Grace Baptist Church in Brooklyn. 
1979. He was at the absolute bottom of his life. He was still living out of his car. He was lonely, desperate, searching for answers. And in this sermon, the pastor talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And the pastor told the story of his life, how he lived and worked as a pastor in Nazi Germany, and how he was a man of deep conviction, and how he decided that he was not going to make any compromises. Because Jesus, when he died on the cross, he didn't make any compromises. And then the pastor said that Bonhoeffer sacrificed his life. He was martyred. He was killed under Nazi regime. Bonhoeffer sacrificed his life because Jesus sacrificed his life. And the pastor explained that Jesus sacrificed his life to save humanity from our sins. At infinite cost, separation from the Father, physical human pain, physical human death, and not just any death, but a shameful, dishonoring death, deserted by family and friends, rejected by all humanity. Charlie Oswald, he's sitting there, he's listening to this, and he realized He was living the cheapest possible life that he could possibly live. And that if he was calling on God, it was only because he was in such desperate need. And what he only wanted from God was just to help him, to get him out of his mess. That's it. And he realized in that moment what a selfish and narrow life he was living. Even as he was miserable, he was still just focused on himself. And he said, and Charlie Oswald realized that if the gospel is true, that God not only costly died for him, but he costly died for others. If God so values people like that, then how dare he mistreat, disdain another human being? He just wept. And he says it broke him even more than he was already broken. And he says he needed to be broken even more. He needed to be brought even lower so that only God could fill him up. And then from that day on, he started praying for Barbara. And he prayed to God, he said, would you be in her life? Would you work in her heart? And he was finally able to forgive his ex-wife. And he gave up his hatred for Barbara. And instead, he gave his life to Christ. Most of you are not in the dire straits that Charlie Oswald was. Some of you are, but most of you are not. And what I want to say to you, and please listen to me, I want you to know that the greatest problem in your life is that you don't realize how much you need the grace of God. You need God's grace like your lungs need oxygen, like your body needs food. And we're so afraid of allowing ourselves to be brought low. You're you're trying so hard to create this life 
to do everything right so that you can keep God at arm's length so that you won't have to need him so much. But when you realize, just like the Israelites in Egypt, you're in bondage to sin. And when you realize that God in Christ has rescued you from sin and death and judgment at infinite cost to himself, and when that hits you like a ton of bricks, you will be changed. You will be a new person like Charlie Oswald. And and then the commandments of God won't be a burden to you. They'll be a delight. Let's pray. Almighty God, we don't know. We don't know how much we need you. We need your grace. We need your forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We're so blind. We're trying so hard to live this life of self-sufficiency. We're trying so hard to keep it together. And we won't allow ourselves to fall apart in your arms. Lord, remind us of the infinite, never giving up, far-reaching love of Jesus Christ who reached down, who came to us, who humbled himself as a servant and who stretched out his arms and laid down his life that we might have eternal life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.